Well, welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. Well, the last six weeks have been a short, sharp shock for our British friends who visited the felt and the semi-desert as well as the green hills of Natal. Things have moved apace since war was declared on October the 10th. It's Christmas 1899 and across South Africa, very few people are feeling festive. In the southwest, Methuen has been held up as he tried to race to Kimberley to relieve the siege and where the arch-imperialist Cecil John Rhodes is residing, demanding a saviour rescue him. In Natal, a disaster befell the British at Calenzo with over 1,130 casualties as Sir Redverse Buller tried to reach Ladysmith where 13,000 British troops are holed up, besieged. That led to Buller being fired as the commander-in-chief of forces in South Africa. Lord Roberts, who was in Ireland, has been assigned the job of leading the Army Corps after Buller's shambolic record and strategic blunders. Roberts, however, is still preparing to depart for Cape Town, and there's still time for Buller to create mischief, and so he does, as we'll see next week with the terrible Battle of Spionkop. If ever the word carnage sums up a singular event, it's Spionkop. But before we hear about that battle, our focus must shift this week into Ladysmith itself, where the small town on a railway line between the port of Durban and Johannesburg has become a strategic imperative. General Piet Joubert, the Boer commander, had surrounded the town and then betted on General White, eventually surrendering without too deadly a clash. He was wrong. The British were not going to make the same mistake they made in 1881 after they were defeated at Majuba. This time they wanted the Boers to surrender in utter defeat, whatever the human cost to both sides. A couple of years ago I purchased a book called The Music of the Guns, compiled by Henry May, featuring the diaries of the Boer War by two very different people who knew each other. One is a precocious teenager called Frieda Schlossberg, who lives in Pretoria and who wrote assiduously during the war. The other, a doctor called James Kay, who is a surgeon based in Ladysmith and who kept a comprehensive diary about events there. Well, starting in 1849, Dr. K spent years hunting whales in the Antarctic as the doctor on board whaling boats, but then a chance event in Durban, while his ship was being refitted, led him to join the Royal Army Medical Corps and then fighting in the Zulu War of 1879. After the war, he was trained as a surgeon back in Ireland, then returned to South Africa again to live in Pretoria. In 1899, Dr. K was married to Alice. They had four children. Dr. K certainly was interesting. He lived in the Antarctic, Bronkospreit in South Africa, Dublin in Ireland, and finally Pretoria, a global villager, so to speak. He knew Frieda Schlossberg because during his stay in Pretoria, he was the Schlossberg's family physician. But Dr. K was forced to flee the Transvaal capital in early October because the Boers believed him to be a British spy. One night he dressed in women's clothing and then caught the train to Pinamaritzburg from Pretoria. There he offered his services to the British forces and by dint of a poor stroke of luck ended up besieged in Ladysmith. His wife Alice and their four children weren't far away. They were in Howick, about 120 kilometers as the crow flies, but they may as well have been on Mars. On the 11th of November, he'd written in his diary that his brother Tubby had got a letter through to him, and Dr. K says in his journal, Tubby wrote to me yesterday and seems to think we will be relieved within a week. I hope he's right, as this is an awful existence. He was wrong, and it was a truly awful existence. What took place in Ladysmith would be the subject of an inquiry after the war. It was so horrendous. 
13,700 soldiers, 5,400 civilians, including 2,400 black workers and Indian cooks, cleaners, medical orderlies. They'd spent six weeks now cooped up in that town. They had resorted to digging holes in the banks of the Clip River, which flows through the town, to avoid the Boer shells and lived in these dank recesses in their thousands. By November, the Army Corps under Buller was reported to be at Calenzo, a few kilometers south, and there was great excitement in Ladysmith itself. They heard the terrible sound of the guns on the 14th and 15th of December rumbling in the distance and expected salvation at any moment. But suddenly, on the 17th of December, a bleak notice was posted on battalion notice boards in Ladysmith that Buller had failed in his first attempt at Calenzo, so relief was postponed until past Christmas. That was a shock, as the garrison and Ladysmith could hear their compadres fighting so close to the town as they squatted in their holes they dug for themselves to shield from the sun and the shell. Around a dozen war correspondents were also sheltering in the town, and they were tired of the military's white lies and of the Boer shelling, which was a daily danger. So these journalists began to publish a siege newspaper they called the Ladysmith Liar, as an L-Y-R-E, or a stringed instrument, but clearly you could also hear it as Liar, as an L-I-A-R. They then began lampooning both Paul Kruger and British General White's HQ staff in true journalistic equanimity. It was a strange existence interspersed with intense fear. Black soldiers were used as runners and spies and tried to make their way through the Boer lines to send messages to the outside world, while the heliograph was used extensively to send short notes out by the military during the day using the sun. Black soldiers could disguise themselves far better than white, because if you were white, you were either a Boer or a Brit, based on your accent and politics. But if you were black, you could be either. Every day, a lookout posted to watch for shelling gave warning when he saw the puff of smoke from the powerful Boer gun called Bulwana Tom, or the other called Puffing Billy. Both these guns fired black powder, so could be identified when firing. But the howitzers, which were smaller in calibre but as deadly, because they used smokeless powder, citizens had no idea when they were being called into action until the first shell fell amongst them. These Boer guns were nicknamed Silent Susan and Weary Willie. However, when the smoke of Bulwana Tom or Puffing Billy was spotted, a bugler blew his trumpet as a warning, and people had 30 seconds to find shelter before the shell exploded somewhere in town. The 94-kilogram shell explodes, sending shrapnel humming and thudding through the streets. The birds fall silent, and then someone, maybe lying dead, smashed. Then everyone emerges from their holes and bunkers and continues on their way while the British artillery fires back using their 4.7-inch gun named Lady Anne. It was one of only two guns that had the range to fire back at Bulwana Tom or Puffing Billy. At first, the Boers only fired during the day and then stopped on Sundays for the Sabbath and church. That all changed at dawn on Sunday the 12th of November when the Boers shelled Ladysmith and from then on it was day and night seven days a week. On Christmas Day, 1899, Long Tom had been firing since dawn, upsetting the civilians and enraging the British troops. Had the Boers not an ounce of civility even in war? asked the troubled townsfolk querulously on Christmas Day. But one of the shells failed to explode, and when it was dug up, it was found to contain a Christmas pudding wrapped in a Union Jack and a note which read, Compliments of the Season. 
Clearly the pudding was a joke, but the shrapnel from the other shells was no laughing matter. For instance, on the 24th of November, when Long Tom opened up at 6pm as the Liverpool unit were in the mess hall, that received two direct hits. Nine men were severely wounded, five killed, smashed by the shell. On the 30th of November, the town hall took a direct hit, and that was a real problem because it was the field hospital. There were ten casualties in that blast, including two doctors. On Friday, 22nd of December, Long Tom began firing at 7 in the morning, and that day it was the Gloucester's turn. Worse, they had failed to appoint a lookout, and no one heard the bugle. A single shell then exploded in the middle of that unit. Eight men were killed, nine others injured. Other days were confusing. For example, one weekend there was a cricket match between the Devons and the Gunners. As the match began, the Boers opened fire, but they purposefully fired duds. A shell landed close to the batsman and rolled towards him as he pretended to play a shot at the smoking dud. That must have been a little mind-boggling, a somewhat unusual moment, if you can imagine the soldier clad in white trying to hit an artillery round for six. In amongst all this lunacy and death, the officer commanding, Sir George White, was in some trouble. His senior officers wanted to raid the Boer lines, Worse, the failure by the world's preeminent empire to save them had turned the civilians into a muttering mob who couldn't believe that the Boers were able to dominate this war so far. And White had a couple of interesting civilians in his midst. One was a farmer called Willis, who owned the land upon which Bulwana Tom was firing, and he was extremely upset. He knew that hill backwards and had personally asked Sir George to attack, even describing the best time of day and the route. Farmer Willis had another reason to be emotional. His wife delivered a baby boy on the 6th of December in the hole he had dug in the bank of the Clip River, which flows through the middle of Ladysmith. That was their bunker, but he now wanted to go home. He and his wife named the boy Harry Buller Siege Willis, or Harry Willis to his friends, fortunately. Cecil John Rhodes's brother, Frank Rhodes, was also holed up in Ladysmith, along with Dr. Leander Starr Jameson, the man the Boers hated for trying to overthrow their state in a foiled coup attempt in 1896. So there were many reasons for the Boers to make the British pay in Ladysmith. Well, after doing nothing for six weeks, suddenly, on the 8th of December, with General Redvers Buller supposedly on the way, White decided to move. He sent two companies on different missions. The first under General Hunter hit Lombard's Corp, around 8 kilometres east of Ladysmith at night, where two big guns were on the lower slope and one of the Creosot Long Toms was high up, protected by 30 feet thick sandbag emplacements. Hunter was led by African guides, another example of just how involved the black South Africans were in this war. They found Lombard's Corp almost unguarded. They blew up the guns after stealing their sights and chasing away the Boer guards. But the second mission didn't end well for the British. White sent out cavalry on a patrol to Nicholson's Neck, and 24 men were killed or wounded there, so it was a mixed result. Things were heating up. Three nights later, five companies of the King's Rifle Brigade, including Captain John Goch, headed to Surprise Hill almost directly north and blew up the howitzer there. But the Boers blocked their retreat, and a terrible hand-to-hand fight ensued where nine British were killed, 52 wounded. On the Boers' side, the British thought they'd killed over 30, but it was more like 10. These intermittent skirmishes helped improve the British morale, but hardly caused a dent in the siege itself. 
Then the news of Buller's defeat on the 15th of December spread through the town and despondency set in. New Year's Eve for the Boers was a mixed bag. Denise Reitz, who was part of the Transvaal Commando, writes on New Year's, I saw the New Year in with the Swazilanders, who held a sing-song in celebration, and three days later, three days later, I said goodbye to my uncle and started home. Clearly three days celebrating New Year's indicates Reitz enjoyed a party. There were hundreds of Boers from Swaziland fighting against the British, there were real characters on both sides. For example, there were three Texans fighting for the Boers who travelled to South Africa with their horses and full cowboy regalia. And Reitz's uncle, who was Norwegian, he married into the family and was now fighting alongside the Boers. While back at his camp overlooking Ladysmith, Reitz realised something was going on. He writes, For weeks there had been talk of an attack by the Free State forces against the loose standing corp called Wagon Hill, considered to be the key of the Ladysmith defences. We had so often heard of the proposed attempt that by now we had ceased to believe in it, but this time it looked as if something was on foot at last. He wasn't alone. On the British side, the troops had noticed what they called an airy silence prevailed in the Boer lines. On Saturday, 6th of January, it was a moonless night, the night the Boer leaders had agreed with Paul Kruger that they would try and strike a proper blow against the British in Ladysmith. About midnight, sentries posted on the hill heard hymns floating up from below. Anyone who's been trained in military matters knows that sound floats upwards at night better than downwards. But what did this hymn singing mean? Technically, it was the start of the Sabbath, just after midnight. British commanders thought that most Boers were off south, preparing to repulse Sir Redvers Buller's next push towards the town. Reitz himself had ridden south to check for, then explains he was back in position on the morning of the 6th and was told at that point that 400 Pretoria men were to create a diversion by falling on what he called our old friend the Red Fort on one of the adjacent hills near Caesar's camp, as the Free State commander attacked the British on Wagon Hill. Getting ready for the clash, Reitz clearly did not trust some of his colleagues, particularly those he referred to ignominiously as poor whites. We collected in the dry sprite below Bell's Cop, from which we'd started our previous abortive expedition. Our experience on that occasion did not tend to reassure us, for once more there was a strong dilution of Burgerite earthen men in our ranks, and we shook our heads when we saw them dejectedly standing behind the bank of the Sprite, showing little inclination for the work at hand. As he wrote this after the war, perhaps he was a little too harsh on his colleagues. But what we do know is that when the field cornet gave the order just before sunrise for an attack, only 200 of the 400 moved. The rest refused to follow, so his criticism of his fellow fighters may have been correct. We should try and understand just how independent these Boer soldiers were. They would never be shot for treason when ignoring an order, because that was the way of the Boers. Every man was a castle, and he would decide on the spur of the moment whether or not he would fight. They were not judged by their system for refusing to commit themselves to death, each man would decide whether it was feasible or likely to secure victory. So it was a combination of democracy and anarchy. This was, of course, anathema to the British. Still, think about this process. These Transvaal men knew they were a little irrelevancy. Some would die just to create a diversion, and they weren't prepared to offer their lives for an unclear end. So I guess it seems logical. 
However, Rates and his men crept forward to attack Caesar's camp around four and a half kilometers from Wagon Hill. Meantime, and unbeknown to the Free Staters, General White had suddenly decided that that was the day to relocate the two 12-pounders and his 4.7-inch Navy gun called Lady Anne on the one side of Wagon Hill to the other. This was to prove a stroke of good fortune for the British. The move was to be supported by 70 members of the Gordon's Brigade and 25 sappers or engineers, along with 13 naval gunners. And they began their work at night and then gunshots. And the sounds of the bullets ricocheting off the rocks nearby shocked these men who kicked out their lamps and rushed for cover. The sappers tried to make a run for it, but one of the Gordon's officers called Digby Jones leapt on a boulder with his revolver in his hand and yelled, The first man that passes me, I'll shoot him dead. In your mind's eye, please try and build an image of this pre-dawn gunfight. Bullets were bouncing off rocks, leaving sparks as they struck. Some of the lamps had ignited the grass and small fires burned. Men shouted and screamed. In one corner, the oxen brought up to pull the guns into place, ignored the shooting and munched on dewy green grass. Gunner Sims and Lieutenant Digby Jones pulled some of the men into a small stone fort, more like a ring of stones with loopholes 20 feet around, and then began to count them off like some kind of boarding school roll call. One, two, three, four, five. Numbers one to eight will be the right half section. Numbers nine to fifteen will be the left half section. Now then, men, are you ready? Right half section, ready, present, fire! To add confusion, the cavalry pickets nearby, who'd been sent to protect them, were from the Imperial Light Horse, and they wore the same slouch hats as the Boers. Their clothing looked the same. Even the horses were similar, adding to the confusion. That very moment, hundreds of free staters poured into the ridge and began to attack the Sangers and the British present. But the British fired a volley courtesy of Gunner Sims' order. Fifteen Boers were shot down immediately, and the rest of the Boers then dived for cover. Around five kilometers away, on the east of the ridge, at a place called Caesar's Camp, madness had also erupted. Denise Reitz had moved into position with his men at the camp and saw the muzzles of the defenders' rifles sticking through the loopholes in the grey pre-dawn. He writes, Our soldiers were standing by to repel borders. For above the breastworks, their bayonets glinted in the rising sun and gave us still further food for thought. The Boers feared the cold steel bayonet, but there had been few occasions for the British to get close enough to use this terrifying weapon. The Boer attack on the camp fizzled out. Rates and his colleagues lay in the thick grass between rocks. They could not move, and neither could the British in the little fort on top of Caesar's camp. Rates continues, It was yet before eight in the morning, but we heard the sound of violent gun and rifle fire from Wagon Hill, where the main battle was being joined. How the free staters were prospering, we had no means of knowing. Ladysmith was in danger of falling to the Boers in a remarkable change of tactics that caught the British completely off guard. In fact, Rates and his men were on the cusp of managing to chase the small group of men off Caesar's Camp Hill and their colleagues on the other side at Wagon Hill. They'd seized the vital crest line and forced the British into a small fort of stones. Then the artillery began to pound the Boers, who had employed the direct assault tactic with a hope they'd catch their opponents flat-footed. It was going to be a close call. At 8 a.m., six companies of the Rifle Brigade reached the small garrison at Caesar's Camp Hill, bolstering their strength. But there was confusion about who was in command. Thomas Packenham, the author, points a finger at the hothead Ian Hamilton. He was supposed to be in charge, but had bolted to Wagon Hill when the fighting began, leaving no one in command at Caesar's Camp. At Wagon Hill, 
2,000 men from both sides were also lying in long grass only a few meters away from each other. There were 250 Free Staters and around eight times that number of British infantry. This led to repeated attempts by the British to break the Free Staters, with an officer leading a small group of men as they rushed the Boers, only to be shot down. Eventually, Hamilton ordered these suicide rushes halted. Both sides took stock. It was now 11 in the morning and stalemate. Two hours later, at 1pm, the troops on both sides were out of water, lying in intense heat. The Boers tried another frontal attack at Wagon Hill. There was intense hand-to-hand fighting, but that attack failed, and by four in the afternoon, it was clear the Boer attempt at taking Ladysmith's most strategic high ground had failed. And Reitz was still trapped, with around 200 men on Caesar's camp. At around five, though, as the sun began to slip, Africa provided a perfect camouflage for their retreat. A storm, Reitz writes. Almost without warning, black clouds raced across the sky and they broke upon us the most violent storm that I've ever experienced. It leapt at us with a roar and there fell a deluge which in an instant blotted all from view. We abandoned our dead and wounded and fled blindly through the hurricane in the direction of our camp a mile away. The next morning there was an armistice to collect the dead and wounded. The mangled remains of the Boers in the southwest slope of Caesar's camp meant they were buried almost immediately without identification. Reitz writes of at least 300 casualties on the Boer side. The British counted 52 bodies at Caesar's camp alone. On the British side, 424 casualties were reported, including 17 officers dead or dying, 28 others wounded, 158 men killed and 221 wounded. It was after viewing the mangled corpses on Wagon Hill that a certain Captain Stevenson wrote, Civilized war is awful. While this appears a contradiction, wars are not civilized. What he was referring to was the modern type of war and a precursor to World War I. This involved the effect of shrapnel on concentrated groups of men, which caused terrible injuries, and of course the high-velocity magazine-fed rifles and semi-automatic cannon, which increased the number of casualties significantly. Back at the Boer camp, Denise Reitz carried the body of his friend Frank Ruiz to his tent the day after the battle and then wrote, For the second time in three weeks, my companions and I sat by the body of a messmate wondering whose turn was next. The war was just beginning for Reitz and tens of thousands of others. The painful months coming would be torturous and testing. Paul Kruger had demanded action from his army, and they'd responded, but had failed to take the hills overlooking Ladysmith. This was an ominous sign of things to come. How could the small band of Boers oppose the juggernaut that was the British Empire? Well, that's all for this week. Please take a look at our new website. It's abwarpodcast.com. That's abwarpodcast.com. And the Facebook page, Anglo Boer War Podcast. You can also post a comment or rate us on iTunes, please. It'll help expose this true tale to more followers. And please feel free to direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. That's at D-E-S-L-A-T-H-A-M for Mike, Des Latham. So next week, we'll talk about how Winston Churchill managed to escape from his Pretoria jail and feature some of his journalistic writing in the preparation for one of the most destructive battles of the entire war called Spion Corp. Goodbye. (music) 